Good, good afternoon. Uh, here we are for our wonderful big book study. And Harlan G is going to be leading that big book study. And uh, after Harlan is done, it's usually about an hour, we will then move into question and answers. And please put any questions you may have in the chat. Feel free to do that as you go along. And if you want to be anonymous in the chat, you can directly uh, send your question to me in the chat, Nancy J. Or if you don't mind revealing your name, you can just put it in the chat to everybody and I'll see it. And we will ask your question during the question and answer period. Or you can raise your hand electronically uh, after Harlan's done and we'll see your name. Uh, so however you wish to show you have a question after Harlan's done, we will very happily take your question and Harlan will answer it. And I am now going to have Harlan begin and Harlan, take it away. Thanks, Nancy. And thanks everybody for coming. I know that this is a week where there's a lot of stuff competing with us. I know that there's a retreat or a workshop coming out of Canada and there's all manner of workshops and all kinds of pre-holiday hoopla that are going on this weekend and for the next eight or nine weekends until we get to the end of the year, we're going to be competing with some heavy hitters. So I appreciate you guys coming here to, to hear me this morning. This is the season of workshops and retreats and pre-holiday things like that. I am so glad that you're here. As I said, it is a beautiful day. It's uh, October the 16th, and I hope that it is as beautiful where you are today as it is here. The desert is just gorgeous. It's 79 degrees. The humidity is very, very low. It just feels so right to be outside today, and it feels so right to be here in Arizona. And we say to each other, uh, at this time of year, this is why we live here. We're coming out of summer and whoa, this wasn't as hot as last summer. No way was it as hot as last summer. Last summer was, was unbelievably brutal, but this summer was still a hot summer. And so we're very glad to be on the other side of that. And it's so nice. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about some things today that are very, very important and we're going to first review something about the chapter, A Vision for You. And A Vision for You is also the name of the phone meeting that many of us, I'm going to dare I say, most of us attend on a very regular basis in the mornings. Uh, they are at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and 10 a.m. Eastern time. And I know that most of us are not only aware of them, but we, we attend them quite a bit. And the name of Vision for You comes from this chapter. And the Scottsdale Zoom meetings that are on this Zoom channel, this Zoom information, Sunday through Thursday, 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Arizona time, Pacific time now, we'll switch soon, um, is, is also named A Vision for You. One little housekeeping thing that I do want to remind everybody of. On November the 6th, we will not be meeting. 
there'll be someone here to sort of let you know, oh, did you forget we're not meeting today, I think. And that's going to be, I believe, Maria. But just so that you know, on the 7th of November, all of you are going to change your clocks. You're going to fall back. You're going to go back one hour. And in Arizona, we do not observe daylight savings time. So it will, we will be on mountain time at that moment. But what I've agreed to do, and we'll see how it works, but let's just do it for now. We're going to roll back the time of this to 9 a.m. mountain time instead of 10 a.m. Pacific time. So no matter where you are, here's the rule. Unless you are in the state of Arizona, unless you are in the state of Arizona, this meeting will begin one hour earlier than it has been. It will be one hour earlier, no matter where you are, unless you are in the state of Arizona. And then, well, it'll be an hour earlier too, because we're going to begin. So I guess no matter where you are, it's going to begin an hour earlier. Okay, let's get back down to why we're here rather than logistical information and bookkeeping and things like that. Let's get down to business. The name of this chapter of Vision for You comes from this idea that Bill had of creating the vision of what your recovery will look like. It is an incredible, incredible journey to go from the place where food is everything. It is my lover. It is my friend. It is my companion. It's my recreation. It's my solace. It's everything in my life. It's my comfort. And when food is taken away from me, even though I don't want to be fed anymore, even though I'm suffering, even though I know that my life is going down the drain, do anything, but don't take away my food. Don't take away my food because it's really the only comfort that I've had over the last many years is what I said to myself when I came in here. And it is a very difficult thing to give up the food. Not only is there a physical withdrawal from the food, there's the nausea, there's the headaches, there's the uneasy feeling, but there's also that feeling of what are we going to do now? How am I going to watch a football game? How am I going to navigate life? How am I going to make it through the ups and downs of life without my best friend food? Chocolate did things for me quickly that the steps do for me now, it's a little slower, but they do them, but with none of the, of the death-defying side effects. And Clancy Immislin did a lead a number of years ago, and he says, alcohol did for him quickly what the steps do for him slowly, but the steps never killed him. I've never gone to the cardiologist, and he looked at me and said, Harlan, I don't think you should do so many 10 steps. Harlan, I don't think you should do so many uh, 11 steps. I think you should cut back on your meetings. He, they have never said that to me in my entire life, but they have begged me from the time I was six 
and seven years old not to eat so much. I remember, as I, I've said this here many, many, many times, I remember going to the doctor as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, and the doctors would be screaming and yelling at my mother or father or both, whoever took me to the doctor, they'd be screaming and yelling about how fat I was getting. And my mother and father would cry or they would you know, start screaming back and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is I got a feeling from a very early age on that because I was fat, there was something profoundly, profoundly wrong with me. I was wrong. I was different. I wasn't cutting it in life. I wasn't up to speed. I wasn't up to the standard of being a human being. And the separation from food is a difficult one for me because food was everything, as I said before. And then I let the food go and I feel like the, the hole in the donut or the hole in the bagel. What am I gonna do now? How am I gonna recreate? How am I gonna take the edge off? And little by little by little by little, the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous, along with the steps, along with the friends that I made, along with the experiences that I had, filled my life, excuse me, filled my life in a way and I know very well, food could never have filled my life in that way. There is just no possibility that food could have done for me what this magnificent program has done for me. Let's go to page 153, 153, and we're near the top of the page, and we're at the paragraph, it may seem incredible. It may seem incredible. And I'll give you a second to get to that page. And as I look at my life today, yes, there's heartache. Yes, there's disappointment. Yes, things don't always go my way. They don't always go anybody's way. They don't even do always go God's way. Uh, God doesn't want people to hurt each other. God doesn't want people to kill each other or hurt each other. He cries too, but he gave us free will. And sometimes we use that free will in a way that's less than what he would have wanted us to be, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think he would want us to hurt each other physically or emotionally or anything like that. I just don't think so. That's not the kind of God I have in my brain anyway. 153, it may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? And we're going to take that sentence and we're going to look at it. And these men were alcoholics. Some of us may be alcoholics. A lot of us are, uh, not a lot of us, <laughs> ostensibly all of us are compulsive overeaters. But some of us are in Al-Anon and some of us may be in NA or AA or, or whatever. You know, it's, it, we're multiply addicted a lot of us. Some of us are in DA and some of us are in, uh, you know, whatever we're in. And these men, these low bottom alcoholics, low, low bottom, remember that we're talking about 1939. 
This was the last chapter written. And much of this chapter was penciled as they were running to the station wagon to bring the book to the printer. And these were low bottom alcoholics. These were guys that were, you know, living in the park, a lot of them, and just had nothing. Their lives were just, just trashed. And look at what God did to, here we are in 2021, October the 16th, and we're going to be talking about Bill Wilson, Bill Dotson, Dr. Bob Smith. These guys were alcoholics. Who would have thought in those days, in the 1930s, that some 80 plus years later, we would still be talking about these alcoholic men. The idea alone is preposterous. It's preposterous. And yet here we are and we're doing it. So if we can remember these people today, just think of what's possible for you. Just think of what's possible for all of us. It's an incredible journey. And when we start on that journey of recovery, miracles happen all the time and things happen in unexpected ways from unexpected direction at unexpected times. And I'm gonna talk about one of those miracles this morning, not just this second. The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. And if these low bottom Hank Parkhurst, Bill Dotson, Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, Jimmy Burwell, Clarence Snyder, Fitz Mayo, if we remember them fondly today and we revere them as well we should, then anything is possible for you. That you have an opportunity to make that difference in the life of a suffering person. If you have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, and you are now, because of your spiritual awakening and your abstinent, you've had this and now you're sponsoring, you have an opportunity to live forever. You have an opportunity to achieve immortality. You have an opportunity to help another person who is suffering and suffering in ways that one cannot always imagine. The suffering of this disease is a curse that we, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And you who are sponsors, you who are working toward that, have that opportunity. And I've told this story many, many times. I'm going to tell it again this morning quickly. I had a friend, he died. His name was Scott. And Scott was an alcoholic. And he was a drug addict. And he was a compulsive overeater. He was one of those multiply addicted people. But he was very thin as a younger man and strikingly handsome. He was a Jewish boy, but he looked very, very Mediterranean, like Italian, Greek, that kind of thing. And the girls used to flip their lids when he was around. He was very, very, very good looking. They just went nuts for him. And Scott was, he moved out to New York. He got a, a part in a play on Broadway. He was an actor. He got a, pot, a part on Broadway in a play. And he met one of the uh, 
women there that was there and he married her and they decided to go out to Los Angeles to try to get into movies, TVs, commercials, whatever, you know, whatever was available. And they get out there and he's an active member of AA and he is on, it was a Saturday night, a very rainy, miserable kind of Saturday night in Los Angeles. And he's answering the phone at the AA office. He gets a call and it's a guy that is really struggling out in East LA. And if you know anything about LA, the further away from the ocean you get, the lower the, the, lower the value of the real estate. So East LA is not exactly the high rent district. So they go out to this motel in East LA and they see a guy and he's sitting on the bed and he's drinking whiskey and he's physically he's sick, but he's drinking whiskey and he's sitting on the bed. And they go in and they talk to him for about an hour. They always go in twos. They never go by themselves. They go in twos and they're talking to this guy and talking to this guy. And all of a sudden, by and by, they realize he's falling asleep. He's, he's asleep. There's no sense us talking to him. The guy is sleeping. So they take this bottle. They put it on the dresser. They didn't steal it. They didn't pour it down the sink. They just left it on the, on the nightstand. And they put the guy to bed. Five years Later, five years later, Scott is speaking at an alcathon in San Diego, in Mission Bay at the Sheraton. And he is the speaker right before lunch. And it's 11 to 11.50 is his time. He breaks at 11.50. They're all walking out to go to lunch. And this guy comes up to him and clamps a bear hug on him and says, you saved my life. And Scott says, I don't know you. Do we know each other? And he says, oh yes. He says, I've been sober for five years. And he says to him, you're Scott, right? And he says, yes. He says, do you remember five years ago, you came out to a motel in East LA and you talk to a guy there about AA and not drinking and this and that, and you put him to bed because he fell asleep. And Scott says, yes, I remember that. Yes, I remember that. And he says to Scott, I was hiding under the bed. I was too afraid to come out and face you, but I was hiding under the bed and I haven't had a drink since that day. So you never know how it's going to come to you. You never know how the magic that is this program is going to come into your life. You just don't know. Don't ever short, don't ever sell short the power of God. Don't ever sell short the amazing power of this program. And that when this program is unleashed in your life, it has the power to grant you elevation above certain things like addiction and other things that you would never have found in any other area of the world. You will be amazed 
before you are halfway through. You will find that this program, when it's unleashed through your effort and you walk to God and he runs to you, you will find miracles beyond your human comprehension. I am living proof of it. Doctors have been signing my death certificate from the time I was a teenager. And I am 67 years old. I know I don't look a day over 65, but the bottom line is I am 67 years old and I walk three miles a day, six days a week. I do a swimming pool workout five days a week. I'm alive and I am a vibrant member of an OA home group and I participate in life and I have a life. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Trust God, clean house, help others. Let's continue. It says here now, should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of your experience, we are sure they will come. This has to be the number one thing in my life without exception. There is nothing more important than this in my life. Now, is it the only thing that's important in my life? No. I have friends. I wish I had a significant friend, but I have friends and I have whatever I have. I have a life, but this is numeral uno. This comes before anything. And when I put this first, I live first class. And when I don't put it first, I live last class. It's just not a very good life when I don't put this first. And when he says, be willing to make use of your experience, I talk to people all the day, all the time. They refuse to sponsor. They're afraid to sponsor. We are not in the results business. Sponsoring is just following the big book, carrying the message of the big book, shining the light on the big book and saying, this is my experience. We're not in the results business. We are not in the results business. We tell people, here's what I did. Here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't work for me. And then whatever they do is up to them. I'm not coming to your house to slap the food out of your hand. I'm not coming to your house to make sure you're working on your steps or you're making your amends. That's up to you. You want to lie or you want it, whatever. That's up to you. I'm not in the results business. And when your recovery is more important to me than it is to you, I'm the alanonic one. I'm the one that needs a meeting. I'm the one that needs treatment with the steps, not you. So your recovery has to be more important to you than it is to anyone else. It's not up to me to recover for you. As a sponsor, I hope you do. I hope you do. But you know what people are going to think if you don't? Nothing. <sighs> so I have to get out of this. I'm afraid of what people think BS. Because you know what they're thinking? Nothing. They're thinking nothing. Most people will not recover. Not because they can't, but they won't. And some will. And that is where the magic is, is in the people that do. I have a 100% recovery rate as a sponsor. 100% of the time I recover when I sponsor someone else. 100% of the time. 
Let's continue. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. And I have to tell you about a miracle that I experienced early in the week. I live in Arizona and most of you think of Arizona, you think of very hot weather and as well you should because that's the reality most of the time, most of the time. But we have mornings here in October, November, December, January, February, March, and, and most of April they're actually quite cold. I go out to work. Uh, I got to out to work. I go out to walk about four o'clock in the morning. Once the vision meeting is getting started and they're starting to announce uh, or not announce, they're starting to read the steps and read the traditions. I'm walking out the door at that point. I have my earphones and I'm walking out the door and I listen to the meeting and it takes me about an hour and a half to do my walk. And I've been walking early in the morning for a long time now, long time. And about 15 or 16 years ago, my then wife went to a place and bought me a jacket, not the most stylish jacket in the world. And by now it looks terrible because it's been rained on and it's been, that's 15, 16 years. And on Monday, I walked out and I walked back into the house and I got the jacket and I put it on. Was I glad that I did because it was cold out there. It was in the 50s. And um, the jacket fit. As a matter of fact, it was a little looser than it was last year. And I thought to myself, here is a miracle. God doesn't necessarily need to shout at me from the top of a building. He doesn't need to shine floodlights on me. He puts a jacket on my back that was purchased by my then wife about 15 or 16 years ago. And this jacket still fits and I'm able to wear it. Now that to me is a miracle. Now, maybe for some of the people who have never been vastly overweight, that's no big deal. You've got that experience. You wear clothes, you know, uh, you know, uh, infinitely longer. I don't know. I've never had that experience. I've never been able to fit into a garment, maybe a sock, maybe a shoe. Yeah, that, yes. But not any other type of garment for 15, 16 years. Are you kidding me? And that jacket fit. And I have t-shirts that I bought when I was still married and I haven't been married for 11 years. And I have this jacket and I call the jacket, it was uh, my miracle jacket. Somebody's unmuted. I call the jacket, my miracle jacket, because when I wear that jacket, it says to me, I'm with you, Harlan. I'm keeping you warm. And I surround your heart and I surround you with my love. And as long as I work the steps, I have a feeling that that jacket is going to continue to fit. I think so. Let's keep going. Our hope is that when this chip of a book is launched on the world tide of alcoholism, defeated drinkers will seize upon it. This book and its contents have restored more alcoholics, drug addicts, compulsive overeaters, gamblers, under earners, sex addicts, love addicts, 
more nicotine addicts, internet addicts, pornography addicts, cocaine addicts, heroin addicts, narcotics addicts, pills addicts, you name it, back into the world than all other methods combined. There is nothing at any cost that can compare to the effectiveness of what's in this chip of a book. The 20th century will ultimately be known for three things. It will be known for flight. 1903, the Wright brothers flight at Kitty Hawk launched the world into the age of airplanes and flight. It will be known as the computer atomic age, the computer slash atomic age. And it will be known ultimately in the tens of thousands of years and the tens of thousands of generations that will follow us as the day or the time when the big book and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous were written. The book is timeless. The steps are timeless. God is infinite and timeless. Love is timeless. Humans are timeless in that they have the same addictions. The bottles may change. The wrappers on the candy may change. The way they gamble may change. The drugs may change. But people are people, and they've been this way for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the truths, the axiom truths, the postulates in this book will never change. That we have been the victims of an illness, not the victims. We have been the sufferers of an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that sets us apart permanently from the normal people, that if we cannot stop eating once we start and we cannot stay stopped, we have an illness that only a spiritual awakening will conquer. And the best way that I have ever heard of to affect a spiritual awakening in myself is to follow the instructions in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. If anybody comes up with something better, please call me right away. Let's continue. Many, we are sure, will rise to their feet and march on. They will approach still other sick ones and fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous may spring up in each city and hamlet, havens for those who must find a way out. Today, there are 180 countries that house Alcoholics Anonymous groups and inner groups. Overeaters Anonymous is in 60 countries. They are in 180 countries. And there are millions and millions of people worldwide, wherever you go, that hold out their hand and say, welcome, welcome home, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever that may be. There are millions and millions of people worldwide. And if you 
when we get back off of this Corona thing and we start coming into the birthdays and the, the uh, conventions in Newark, New Jersey for a vision for you, you will see people from all walks of life they will come from Park Bench and they'll come from Park Avenue. They'll come from Yale and they'll come from jail. And you'll see people from Greece and Italy and Israel and Japan and China. And you will see people from Australia and New Zealand and Korea. You will see as I do that no matter where you come from, no matter what the color is of your skin, no matter what your heritage or your background, if you are a compulsive overeater, then we are exactly the same. You may be black, white, green, yellow. You may glow in the dark. I couldn't tell you. I don't know and I don't care. But if you have this allergy of the body and you have this mind that sets you a, a mental twist and a mental blank spot, if that is what you suffer from, then you are bound to us as nothing and nothing can split us apart. So keep trudging this road of happy destiny. It is a journey that is worth taking. Wherever your life is now, wherever your life is now, grab onto these steps. Work these steps as if it was the most important thing in your life. And things will happen in unexpected ways, from unexpected directions, at unexpected times. That is God. And if my jacket still fits, and if I'm still alive, then there's miracles out there for you. Let's continue. In the chapter, Working with Others, you gathered an idea of how we approach and aid others to health. Suppose now that through you, several families have adopted this way of life, you will want to know more of how to proceed from that point. Perhaps the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Here is a brief account. Years ago in 1935, one of our members, Bill Wilson, made a journey to a certain Western city, Akron, Ohio. He calls Ohio a Western city. It kind of shows his mentality. He was born in Vermont and lived in New York. So to him, Ohio is a Western city, which, and it's funny, you know, Northwestern University is, is in Evanston, Illinois, right outside Chicago. And the reason that they called it Northwestern University is being in Illinois, it was in the Northwestern part of the country, which seems ridiculous. It seems absolutely ridiculous when you think about it today, but okay, you have to live in the time you're born. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. Had he been successful in his enterprise, I'm at the top of 154, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at that time seemed vitally important, but his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. Okay, <clears throat> let's set the time for you. Bill Wilson is living in New York and he's just getting back on his feet. This is March slash April of 1935. 
March slash April 1935. And a couple of things are happening to set the stage for this wholesale miracle. The first thing is, is that Bill gets in touch with people that want him to head up a company in Akron called Akron Tire and Rubber. Akron is a place where your tires came from. Firestone is there, Goodyear is there, Goodrich is there. The nickname for Akron is Tire Town, it's Tire Town. And these people approached Bill and he was in a proxy fight with another group to take over this company. The other group won. Now, that's not the only thing that's important here. There's a couple of other things that are vital to understand. The first one is, is that in March, April of 35, Bill had a tremendous amount of failure. He got sober on the 14th of December, 1934. So at this point, he has three, four months of sobriety. He's trying to pass the message to other people and nobody's getting sober. It's now March of 1935. He comes home and Lois and him are going to an Oxford group meeting in New York. And Bill is complaining to Lois. He says, nobody's getting sober. He says, when I was in the hospital, I got this vision from God. I thought it was from God that I was going to help sober up drunks. And Lois changed the course of the world when she turned to him and said, but you're getting, you're staying sober. And Bill Wilson said, yes. And it was the first time in his entire adult life that he had stayed sober without such a struggle. He had never stayed sober anything like that before with no struggle. That's something that's very important to know. And Lois says to him, why don't you go see Dr. Silkworth? <laughs> go down there tomorrow. Your drunk ass doesn't work. I have to work at the department store, but your drunk ass doesn't work. So you've got all day tomorrow to go down to the hospital. Now he wasn't drunk anymore, but your lazy butt isn't working. So why don't you go down to the hospital and talk to Dr. Silkworth? And in March of 1935, Silkworth tells Bill in Silkworth's office at the town's hospital, yes, I've heard of some of the shenanigans that you've been pulling out there, telling these drunks about God and pulling them off of bar stools and preaching to them from a moral hilltop and telling them all about how God's going to get them sober. He says, why don't you just do what I did with you? And that is explain to them about the allergy of the body and explain to them about the twist of the mind. Explain to them the fatal nature of the illness and how you found recovery in these steps. Now, Silkworth couldn't say, I found recovery in the steps. Silkworth wasn't an alcoholic, but Bill is. And Bill now armed with this information is now saying, I'm gonna do a better job. Now, this is now April of 1935. Bill is on his way to Akron. And in the ensuing couple of weeks, his proxy fight 
fell apart. His business associates leave him in Akron. They go home to New York and he doesn't even have the money to go home. So he's pacing around. Now, there's a couple of other things that have been happening here that are very important to know. The first thing is Harvey Firestone. Does that name ring a bell? Harvey Firestone, the CEO of Firestone Rubber Company. Most of us have had Firestone tires on our car at one time or another, especially if you ever bought a Ford, they're, they're right on there. But anyway, Harvey Firestone had an alcoholic son and he paid money to go out and get Oxford group preachers to come through Akron to preach so that maybe his son would get sober and find God. You know how that worked out. And one of the people that was there listening to one of these preachers talk about God, talk about whatever, was a woman by the name of Henrietta Cyberling. Now, Henrietta Cyberling's family that she married into were the people that owned Goodyear. So you've got Firestone and you've got Goodyear. And she's at this thing. And this is in February of 35. February of 35. Before Bill Wilson ever came to Akron, Henrietta Cyberling knew that Dr. Bob had a severe drinking problem and wanted to find a way to help him because she loved Ann Smith and she saw how Ann was suffering because of Dr. Bob's alcoholism. And in March of 1935, they had a special session. If you're, if you're listening on podcast, I'm making air quotes in my with my fingers, they had a very special session with Dr. Bob to pray for him and do whatever they could do to convince him to stop drinking. You know how that worked out. And Henrietta Cyberling believed that there would be someone coming that would help Dr. Bob. I want you to remember that because it's going to explain a lot that the text doesn't explain, okay? So when Bill Wilson is gonna call her that fateful phone call between the Mayflower Hotel and Henrietta Cyberling, now it's gonna make more sense. She was a believer in God and God had said to her, I'm going to send someone to help Dr. Bob. So when Bill Wilson called her, it just made perfect sense. Otherwise, she may not have taken his call. Otherwise, she may not have invited him over. Would you invite a man over to your house that you've never met in your whole life that identifies himself as a rum hound from New York? The man's telling her on the phone, hey, I'm a drunk. Can I come over to your house? No, he didn't say, can I come over to your house? He says, is there someone that I could talk to? And she says, yeah, come on over. To her, it was just the most natural thing in the world to invite him over. That's what I want you to remember. Let's move forward. 
page 154, bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, Akron, discredited and almost broke, still physically weak and sober, but a few months, he got sober in December, this is now May. He saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? He doesn't know anybody there. One dismal afternoon, this is a Saturday afternoon before Mother's Day. This is May 12th, 1935. It's raining, it's cold, it's, 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 it's just miserable. He paced a hotel, not freezing cold, but in, in you'd be surprised in Chicago or Ohio, some of these May days, they're, they're cold, trust me. Uh, he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. Is in there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and would have a lonely weekend. He's alone. He's 700 miles from home, 600 miles from home. He doesn't know a person in Akron. His friends are gone. He doesn't have the money to pay his bill. This was in the days before credit cards. You paid cash. You paid for things in cash. You checked out of the hotel. You paid. I just made reservations to go to Chicago. I'm going home for a wedding on November 6th. Before they take your reservation, they say, that's very nice, uh, big guy, that you want to stay at our hotel. What's your credit card number? What's your this? What's the expi expiration date? What's your, what? They, they, they ain't operating on love. They, they want no ticky, no washy, buddy. Of course, he couldn't drink, but why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him? After all, had he not been sober six months now, this is May, he got, the sober in, he got sober in December. Perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks. No, more, five, 10. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was the old insidious insanity, that first drink. This is what's going through his mind. What, with a shiver, he turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. The course of human history is now pivoting. Had he taken the drink, we wouldn't be here today. He didn't. He pivoted. He went to that hotel lobby to the church directory. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. He hears it. See, I don't hear a bar. You want to put a buffet in there with all kinds of stuff that I like. Now you got a different story, but I don't hear a bar. I have never been interested in liquor in my life. If I've had 10, 20 alcoholic drinks in my life, that would be a lot. I, nothing that interests me. I hate the taste of it. And the smell of it is enough to get me, vomit, get me nauseated. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. But what about his responsibilities, his family, and the men who would die because they would not know how to get well? Ah, yes, those other alcoholics. And he's remembering that God came to him in the town's hospital 
and and during his spiritual experience the thought comes to him there were thousands of other alcoholics who might benefit from what he had would he would he help them of course i would he's remembering this he would phone a clergyman his sanity returned and he thanked god selecting a church at random from the directory he stepped into a booth and lifted the receiver now we get the impression from what he writes here that reverend tunks was the first person that he's going to call far from it he called up about 10 clergymen and they said no i don't drink come to church tomorrow you won't drink either bam what are you calling me for what do you think i'm a drunk bam what are you calling me for people that go to my church they don't drink bam i've been in telephone sales my whole life that would be enough to send most people out the door crying right into the arms of some whiskey because they're not going to take that kind of rejection eight nine clergymen practically told him to go to hell you're a drunk what are you calling me for go to church find jesus find god find moses find buddha find Mohammed, find whoever and stop drinking. But he found this tongues only because he was persistent. His call, I'm at the top of 155. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of that town. Henry Etta Cyberling is who it led him to. Who, who, though formerly able and respected, was then, oh, wait a minute, no, the resident he's talking about is Dr. Bob, sorry, through Henrietta, who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. It was the usual situation, home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted, bill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and legal and standing damage. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way out, for he had currently tried many avenues of escape. Painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be an alcoholic. Asterisk. This refers to Bill's first visit with Dr. Bob. These men later became co-founders of AA. Bill's story opens the text of the book. Dr. Bob's story heads the story section. Now, remember that he's going to call Henrietta through Reverend Tunks. And when Henrietta hears, I'm a rum hound from New York and I need somebody to talk to or I'm going to drink. I need somebody to help. She doesn't go, ah, what are you calling me for? Click. She says, absolutely. Come right over. Because three months previous, they had a special meeting about Dr. Bob, and she was such a believer in God that she knew that the promise that she felt in her brain and her heart that God would send somebody to help Bob was coming true. How many of you, whether you're male, whether you're female, old or young, black or white, how many of you, if you got a call from somebody that said, I'm a rum hound from New York, I'm here, I'm an alcoholic, I need somebody to talk to, would have said, yeah, come on over. I bet very few, very few. And here she is. And when they dedicated Dr. Bob's house in Akron, at 855 Ardmore Street as a national, as a national historical site, 
If you don't know what you're talking about, you'll miss it. When you go there, it'll say Ohio Congressman John Cyberling on the bottom of the plaque. That was Henrietta's son. And he read on the floor of the Congress a letter from his mother during the 60s. She was too old to travel. She could not, she just could not make it to Washington. He read a letter aloud to the Congress from his mother depicting this first meeting of how it all came together and how she got this phone call from Bill Wilson and how she got this phone call and he came over and Dr. Bob wouldn't come over on Saturday because he was, he had been drinking very, very heavily. He was drunk. He wasn't feeling very good. And the next day was Mother's Day. And she, he, she recounts this whole story. And the Congress declared that 855 Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio, would forever be a national historical place. But if you look at the bottom of the plaque, it will say, Representative John Cyberling, Ohio. He's the congressman that introduced the legislation to make it so. And he read this letter from his mom depicting this world-changing event. The world was changed for me and the world was changed for you. And it was changed for 10,000 generations of unborn addicts of all types because of what happened there. Let's continue. I'm in the middle or almost the middle of 155. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. Dr. Bob did not know about the allergy. Even though he was a doctor, he did not know about the mental twist. He just knew he was a drunk. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. In other words, he looked at these steps, and he was a doctor. He was actually a proctologist. He was a surgeon. He, he operated on uh, rear ends. He operated on tushies. And he was afraid that if he admitted he was an alcoholic, and he went around making amends to people that he would lose whatever little practice he had. See, the thing he didn't know was there was only one person in Akron, Ohio, that did not know that he was an alcoholic, and that was him. He was the only resident of, alcohol, of uh, Akron, Ohio, that didn't know that he was a fall-down drunk. But he wasn't going to do step nine, and he refused to do it. We'll learn how that worked out for him as we move forward. He told how he lived in constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He figured driving drunk and falling down drunk and being drunk and smelling like liquor wasn't enough of a giveaway. He didn't want anybody to find out he was an alcoholic. Sort of like me walking out there at say 600 pounds and I don't want anybody to know that there's something diseased about my eating. Here I am with a you know size 80 inch waist or a 90 inch waist in seven extra large shirts that the, 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 the edges of the shirt weren't even in the same zip code. 
and I had these t-shirts with cigarette burns and food stains all over the shirts. Every garment that I owned had cigarette burns and food stains and all kinds of ketchup and Cheetos and all kinds of crap on there, mustard and God knows what. I walked around like an absolute slob, like an absolute slob. My ex-wife used to go through my clothes and used to get me upset sometimes because she'd throw out Cubs t-shirts and Bears t-shirts and Ducks t-shirts. But if she saw something was getting worn out, like this shirt's a little wrinkled because I didn't fold it. I didn't mess with it. I just threw it on. She would throw it in the garbage. She would not let me walk out of the house if I looked like a, like a, a, a bump. She just wouldn't let me do that. He had, of course, the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking. Yeah, right. Why, he argued, should he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he made his livelihood? He's justifying now. He would do anything he said but that. When he says that, it's steps eight and nine. He was not going to do that. Being intrigued, however, he invited our friend to his home. Now, he didn't just meet Dr. He didn't just meet Bill Wilson and say, yeah, come on over to my house. Before Bill and, and Ann and Smitty and Susan, that was his family, one natural child, Smitty, one adopted child, Susan, two children. Ann was his wife, Dr. Bob. There's four people. One kid's adopted, one kid's natural. Before he invited him to his house, he extracted a promise from Anne that within 15 minutes of getting there, she would get one of her sick headaches. And what happened was he went upstairs with, Doc, with Bill Wilson. And years later, his son, Smitty, Robert Smith Jr., was asked a question. Why didn't your mother pull the shtick out with the, with the sick headache? He said, because we hadn't heard dad laugh in months. And he was up there with Bill Wilson that he just met and they were laughing. And from a promise that he wouldn't have to stay more than 15 minutes, they went up at about five minutes to five. PM. They didn't come down till 10.45, PM. They were up there for six hours, almost six hours. And when they came down the stairs, Dr. Bob came first and Bill was behind him. That's according to Smitty too. And Dr. Bob turned to Bill Wilson when he saw Henrietta and Anne and the kids. And by then the kids really wanted to go home. They were tired. It was a school night. They wanted to go home. He says, this is the first man I've ever met that understands my alcoholism. Now, why is that profoundly funny? Bill Wilson didn't sit and talk about Dr. Bob's alcoholism. He didn't know this guy from the man in the moon. He sat up there for six hours 
and talked about his own alcoholism. And because he told stories of his own alcoholism, Dr. Bob related to such a level that he said, this is the first man that ever understood my alcoholism. Whether you're black, white, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, whether you're tall, short, Democrat, Republican, I don't care what you are, Native American, I don't care what you are. I don't care what language you speak. I don't care what country you come from. I don't care what, I don't care where you were born or what your economic status is. We are the same. We eat because we cannot resist the mental obsession, the mental twist to put out the fire of the buildup of emotions. We are seeking solace in the food and Dr. Silkworth calls it the effect, the effect. And that effect is so elusive, we will chase it to the gates of insanity or death. I'm gonna just finish this paragraph and we will be done for the day. I know we're going slow here. I told you when we started this chapter, there's too much to just read and, and move on. <clears throat> there's history and there's backstory. And my sincere hope is that the backstories give you further insight into what you're reading and what you're talking about in your meetings. Because I think, and I could be wrong, I think the backstories make it so much more juicy. Let's do one more paragraph and then we'll be finished for the day. Being intrigued, however, he invited our friend to his home sometime later. And just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. Remember, he wouldn't work step nine. What are the four impediments? One of them, a resentment you will not let go of, a secret you will not tell, a harmful thrill you will not stop. And what's the fourth one? A, a restitution that you will not make. He wouldn't make restitution. Guess who got drunk again? Him. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problems squarely, that God might give him mastery over them. God may give him mastery. Okay, we're stopping on page 156, and we're going to begin next week one morning. He... Took. Now, before I turn it back over to Nancy or Sue or whoever is doing this, I don't know, we're going to just remember this. If you asked a question last week, I'm asking you to step back and let people who didn't ask one last week come forward. When they're 